video we put on YouTube, we showed it to our board the other day, and I'm like, those are some big ducks. Yeah. <laughs> They're all, everyone's holding turkeys, and we had to explain why. What is opportunity? It is it's funny on the video, they're just talking about this duck kind of this duck, and they're always just turkey hunting the whole yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's pretty fun. Classic. I love That's it. That's not the point of it. I mean, the, the college camp is great, though. I mean, it, it uh, you know, whenever we started it back in 2009 or 10 or whatever with, with UC Davis and Paul Bonderson and, um, uh, the, the, I mean, the whole concept of that thing was getting students from UC Davis that had no background, no experience in hunting, had just no clue on how things are managed um, to give, you know, these these students are going in to manage, you know, they're going to be in management positions at U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Fish and Game. Yeah. And, you know, you could see the division in these agencies already between hunting and non-hunting. And, and we wanted to provide them a little perspective so we created this college camp to invite them up, put them through hunter safety, get them out in the field, give them a hunt, yep. provide them that experience. And it's just been one of the most rewarding programs that I think that we've, we've got going. Um, yeah. I mean, you see Paul Bonderson, you know, all the things that he does um, across the country with different groups and whatnot. And it's, it's the thing that he loves more than anything. Yeah. Like a little kid all weekend. He's oh, like just God, he, happy he loves grinning it. and, yeah. you know, so. Yeah, so he, um, you know, we've been talking with him and 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 John Eady about it. You know, we want to do more of it, right? But it's yeah. hard because you've only got so many weekends. A lot of other things happening on yeah. his property, and um, so we've got. Uh, we did agree to do. We did to do two next year. Yep. Um, and we're going to work with with Humboldt State. Um, <coughs> why not? Try it, baby. Why not oh, Chico yeah. State? Chico is going to go third. Yeah, third, Chico's third, third line. Oh, third so we got terrible. UC Davis, number one, of course. Yeah. <laughs> number one. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> number two, we got uh, Cal Poly. What? Uh, it's Cal Poly Humboldt, Humboldt now. now. Oh, it just ooh, changed. Ooh, it's no. now California Polytechnic University. So that's that's next year. We're going to do two, and then the following year, the the goal is to do three, but, but basically, kind of open it up. Yeah. Where it doesn't have to necessarily be those two schools. They will be heavily involved with help coordinating it, but people will be able to send in their applications, you know, bio of, of why they want to go to camp, what their background is, et cetera. It's kind of moved, you know, for a lot of graduate students kind of now that yeah. are going in and don't have any hunting experience. But at, and back to the kind of rewarding part of it, what I think is pretty neat is like the first time I did it, you know, there's vegans there and like, no one's ever shot a gun. Yeah. And you put me in a blind with a vegan and a Buddhist the first year. Yeah. <laughs> but then it's like, and it went well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thankfully. But you come back and everyone's like, oh, oh my God, you shot a mallard. And yeah, I got four. And it's like, everyone's yeah. grinning and like, you're like, wow, this is really cool. This, you got this instant is something. camaraderie. Yeah, this is yeah. something here, right? And everyone's cleaning their birds, and I mean, like, really getting into it. Of John, what's this and that? And you're know, taking an hour to pick one bird, and you're like, all right, you can go a little quicker. <laughs> yeah, we're like, okay, we've been here for yeah. three days. Well, look at that speculant, looking yeah. at the wings and everything. But um, that's been yeah, it's super rewarding. But we are doing more of those. Um, kind of open it up so people can go onto our website fill the application out and then the universities would be spreading the word as well. So, um, that's, that's awesome. yeah. Well, and spreading the word, that's the, that's the key part of that third, third camp college camp that we hope to, um, integrate into the program yep. is that cross pollination across universities and colleges. Yeah. Um, because it, it really takes somebody at the college to help coordinate and lead that effort with their students. 
Um, so if we can get more colleges and, and universities with individuals there that have a, you know, that see value in this and have a, and have a passion for it, then hopefully we can scale it up and we can do more of yeah. it in other places. Why not? You know? yeah. 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 So, I mean, thankfully, Paul Bonderson and Birdhaven Ranch are going to allow us to do three of these. But it is a resource-intensive thing for a relatively small number of students. Oh, very much so. Yeah. And, um, you know, as much as we'd like to do these things all over the place, there's not very many places where you can do that effectively without really interrupting, you know, a, a landowner duck club's property, you know, which uh, – um, so the cross-pollination will, will create the, the interest and the demand for it, and then we're going to have to look for other places where we can host these things um, – and, you know, that kind of leads me to think about our strategic planning process and our regional conservation education centers and how we can use our own properties to to scale up these types of things where we're not putting the burden on, you know, other duck clubs. Yeah. Um, so our Butte Sink properties is an opportunity for us where we can develop those facilities um, in an area that, you know, we can provide a similar experience that's, that's very impactful for these students. Yep. Beautiful landscape, lots of birds, lots of things for them to see. Um, we could do the duck hunts, the turkey hunts, maybe even deer hunts. Um, so I, I'm, I'm opportunistic that we can develop a vision around that particular property. And in the next five years or so, build that facility out so yeah. that we have a, an education center where we can host more of these types of college camps. So, yeah, I think my most favorite thing I do in the hunt program is duck camps and my least favorite thing about duck camp is I can't do more of them. Yeah. And you yeah. have these things that just, you can see the impact it's making on the people that are there yeah. and you want to have that impact on everybody else. And and you're right. We don't have the facilities everywhere to be able to do all these things. And when we're not running a, a duck camp or a college camp, those properties are getting used anyway. So we have to have that balance of getting the public out to, to use our properties as well as using those areas to uh, educate new hunters. I mean, yeah, there's a yeah. fine balance to it. Absolutely. Well, the, the, sorry. For, yeah. So the impact on a relatively small number of mm -hmm. people, right? So what's the what's the value of that? What what good is yeah, it? Where's for, your measurement? What what good is it for CWA to or you know for me to take a vegan and a Buddhist out in a duck blind for one weekend and mm -hmm. and have them, you know, see my dog bring a sprig back with its neck <laughs> limp and girl turn green? I think she's gonna vomit and thought we were going to end the program right there in the first year, <laughs> right? What's the value in that? Yeah. Um, well, after that weekend, these students that, again, that are going to go into these management positions, uh, while there's only 15 of them um, in most of our camps, that experience, which has thankfully been positive in, in 100% of the cases. Yeah. yeah. I don't, mm -hmm. we, yeah, you know, yeah. the evaluation and the story that they, that they um, provide yeah, at the, the end before is- before and after is telling. Right? Yeah, it's, it's been 100% right? positive. So that positive takeaway from that camp, these students then take that back to school. They take it back to their friends. They take it back to, I mean, that's part of them from here on out. So as they move up through wherever they go, whether it's a consulting firm or working for an endangered species department at, at you know, Fish and Game, um, they take that experience, that positive experience, and associate it with hunters and the conservation work that we do. So it's an exponential type impact that, you know, you can't measure and say, oh, you only took out 15 people, right? Yeah. You put that in an annual report, it's like, oh, great. You spent all that time and money. Yeah, for, for 15, 15, 15 folks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
It's that it's that in I don't know if it's intangible, but it's it's the stuff you can't see on the back end. Oh, that yeah, one person could have affected two hundred people, but that originally yeah. came down to you sitting in the duck blind. Yeah. Yeah, yeah personally, yeah. I think it's the best thing that we do as an organization. Oh, college I, camps. Well, you have a guy that was an awarded as a game warden, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was a pretty cool story. So uh this last year, um I gave CWA's Wildlife Officer of the Year Award to uh, our recipient um, in Monterey at, at their big award ceremony. And uh, hadn't met him before. His name is Austin. And I gave him the award, and we took a picture, and he's like, hey, I got something to tell you. I was like, hey, what? what? He's like, oh, I was a, uh, a UC Davis college student, and uh, the first time I ever went hunting was at you guys' UC Davis college camp. I think it was the first one you guys ever did. I was like, no kidding. He's like, yeah. So yeah, I hunted with this guy named Jake, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, I shot this first time I went hunting. I shot a limit of wood ducks. I was like, uh, no cool. way! And yeah. so yeah, we started talking. After that, he became an avid hunter, wanted to become a warden, you know, wildlife officer, right. and, and that's literally what he does now. He's he's a fantastic wildlife officer. He was highly decorated. He's yeah. only been like an officer for. I don't know, less than 10 years, and, and he's highly decorated. And it was really cool to see that. And then I tell Jake, and he's like, I remember that guy. Yeah. He <laughs> shot his, seven wood ducks. His path I think changed, it was seven right? drake wood ducks, too. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. very yeah. impressive. A corn hunt. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was silly. So, yeah, you, you see what it had impact on him. You know, it, it affected right. his career, affected his life. His What he wants to do as a hobby now for the rest of his life is hunt. It's, it's yeah. just pretty cool it's to amazing. see. Yeah, and when we talk about scale, we're talking about we usually have 15 students there, so we need a fairly big property because everyone's in their own blind. We need sleeping arrangements for all those folks, plus 15 other guides. So over the whole entire weekend, we have 35 to 40 people there helping out Friday through Sunday. When we talk about scale and facilities, it's really hard to find those partnerships that can accommodate that group of folks. But um, basically within a weekend of college camp, they're coming in, getting hunter safety, shooting a gun for the first time, going out in the field, looking at what habitat is, looking at seeds, bugs in the water. Um, duck calling, waterfowl ID, all that good stuff, and then going out on a duck hunt. And the goal is to get them kind of talking with some of the people that have been in the industry for a long time, making those connections as yeah. well to hopefully help their careers yeah. too. Yeah, so. you mentioned shooting the gun for the first time, right? Yeah. So we talk about hunting and <laughs> conservation and everything else. You know, when we talk about protecting our interests as waterfowl hunters and changing views on gun ownership and everything else, I mean – you know, California's got all kinds of crazy stuff. And yeah. I know that there's a another initiative, ballot initiative that's being proposed that could be hugely problematic for us. But so you get, you know, a young college person that's holding a gun for the first time at our camp, shaking literally in tears. Yeah, there's like fear. first time that they've ever held a weapon. Um, talk about an impact. Yep. And, you know, comfort them, calm them down, you know, teach them. Um, and then they fire that, that, you know, weapon for the first time and it's almost like a relief. They, yeah. they understand it, they respect it. And it's yeah. not as scary. It's a, it's a, it's, yeah. it's hugely impactful. Um, I mean, we try to scare people away. Um, <laughs> when we talk about, uh, you know, hunter education and, and, you know, th- that whole process, yep. um, you know, there, there's obviously some bad things that happen with firearms and guns can. and hunting <laughs> and can, and. You know, everyone's got stories about that, and and yeah. that's part of that education process and and sharing it. Um, you know, I know Kevin's got a yeah got a doozy that that he incorporates into some of his hunter education um, classes. Yeah, I mean, it's why I became a hunter ed instructor. So um, some folks have heard this story. Um, I've never told it on a podcast before, but 
in uh, December of 2017, I was actually involved in a hunting accident that nearly took my life. So I was in Elko, Nevada, um, actually there for, for work for a different organization that I worked for um, for a weekend. When I go there, I have an uncle that lives there and we used to go and hang out and do something fun. And uh, this time we were going to go out, well, actually we were planning to go out and hunt the uh, Ruby Marshes, but it was December and it froze over. Right. So that wasn't a very good opportunity at that yeah. point. So we decided to change things up. We're going to go coyote hunting. It's like, all right, that sounds good. You know, especially, you know, coyote hunting out here, they're kind of mangy looking. They're not great. You get over to Elko, they got a great freaking coat on them. So I was like, all right, I would love to tube out a nice coyote pelt. So we go out first spot, my uncle and uh, a buddy of his, and it's cold. It's like zero degrees that morning. And uh, we get on this stand, not too far to Elko, next to South Fork Reservoir. And get the e-collar going. 15, 20 minute stand, nothing comes in. I'm like, all right, well, we'll go pick up another buddy. He's got some good access. Go pick up him, go to this different access, drive on the property. And it's like beautiful coyote country, like rolling open hills, few junipers here and there. It's exactly what you're looking for for a coyote. It's like, all right. So we get set up. And as we're looking at the setup, we've got this slope of this hill in front of us and this valley in front of us to the north, uh, sorry, to the, to the east. And to my right is the, the south, and there's a little hump that you can't quite see over. So like, all right, well, I'm going to go set up over here underneath this juniper on top of this little hump so I can see to the south if we got something coming in. So they all set up right there next to the e-collar, and I kind of get up over there and sit up underneath this juniper. And uh, they click it on, starts calling, and after about five minutes, I look to my right, to the south, where I was trying to see, and there's a coyote coming through the brush. Like, oh. So I get ready to get my gun on it. And uh, it stops, it sees the movement, stops, pull the trigger, and click. It was so cold that morning that it actually froze my firing pin in my gun. So I was like, oh, no. So I jack the shell out. Kyle runs about 20 yards. Get back on it again, pull the trigger, boom, smoke it. Goes down. It's like, all right, cool. And in the distance, I can, I can hear a couple of coyotes calling. It's like, okay, so we got some more dogs coming in. I'm just going to hang out and see what happens. So as I'm sitting there, a couple minutes goes by, and, and in the valley out in front of us, I can see two coyotes running through. And I was like, okay. The way they're going, it's, it's too far for me right at that time. They're running quick. They're going to come past my position, and they're eventually going to come around me. And I was like, okay, the boys are going to get shot at these coyotes. This is going to be sweet. So I'm just sitting there, and I lose them in the slope of the hill. I can't quite see them. And then I see, I finally see one. It was coming up the hill, and it, it's kind of split off. One was coming around them on this side, and one was coming up kind of in between us. So I'm watching that one, and I'm, I'm thinking, like, okay, they may not be able to see it as it's coming up. I've got them here. I've got the pickup somewhere back in here. Once it gets fully behind me, I'm going to have a shot at this. So I'm sitting down underneath that juniper, and I've got my gun, and I'm slowly turning. And as I'm doing that, I just feel an impact hit my left arm. And instantly my ears are ringing, my vision's blurry, and uh, it just felt like dead weight hanging off the left side of my body. So I was like, shit, I just got shot. You know, and that realization kind of went through my head. And I yell, stop shooting. You just shot me with some expletives thrown in there. <laughs> and uh, in my mind, I'm like, okay, I got to get to the truck before I pass out. So I grab my gun, my shooting sticks in my right hand. I'm walking back over. At this, at this point, how aware are you of how bad the injury is? Uh, not aware because I didn't want to know at that point. Gotcha. You know, I'd just gotten I, – I, somewhere on my left arm, I knew I'd gotten shot. I needed to get to the truck before I went down. How many yards away are you from your group 
as you're walking back towards them or are you walking towards the truck? I'm walking back towards them and the truck. The way to get to the truck was to get to them and then walk towards the truck. So it was 90 yards. So okay. it was a little bit further <clears throat> yeah. than and, and I'm going to add something. If you guys okay. missed the first part of our podcast, this is the second part. Um, the person talking right now is Kevin Vela. He is CWA's regional biologist and lands manager. And this is his story about his, uh, his coyote hunt. The gentleman next to him is CWA's COO. And he was talking earlier about our college camp. So Jake Meserly is the COO, and we've got Kevin Vela next to us, and Jeff Smith is next to me. So after you got shot, you're walking back. Yeah, so I'm walking back, and uh, I meet my uncle. He grabs my gun, shooting sticks. Um, one of the guys is already on the phone with 911. Luckily, we had cell phone service there. And uh, I just start piling towards the truck. I open up the back of the truck, and just kind of sit sideways, get in there so my arm's not touching anything. And the other guys hop in the truck, and we're about 45 minutes outside of Elko. And there's snow on the ground. You know, it's not a great situation. So we're slipping and sliding, trying to get out of there. I can hear the gentleman on the phone with the 911 operator, and the 911 operator is asking, you know, how bad is it? How bad is he shot? And I was uh, – <laughs> not, recommended. Yeah. <laughs> not recommended. Not yeah. recommended, but I was, was so... Were you shot with a shotgun or a rifle? I was shot with a two two three. Okay. And so I was so pissed off at that point uh, and kind of a little bit fired up. I, I didn't want anybody to touch my arm. I just wanted to go. Did you think it went into your body at all? Or do you just I didn't know. Like, you're just like, I know my left side's done. I didn't know. Yeah. So, yeah. So I've got on... Uh, a base layer, a down jacket, a wool jacket. You know, it was cold that morning. So I've yeah. got a lot of stuff that can soak up blood. So I don't know how bad I'm hit. I don't see blood coming out. Okay. Um, so anyways, we're in the truck. We're, we're hauling ass, trying to get back to Elko. And uh, all of a sudden, everything outside of the truck starts to go white. Oh, jeez. And then everything inside of the truck starts to go white. And I think I'm dying. You know, um, I don't know what's going on. I, I'm losing my vision. And so at that point, I, I looked at my uncle and I told him, you know, tell Kelsey I love her because yeah. um, I thought I was dying. And at that moment, Kelsey's my wife. And at that moment, I actually had some time to think about my life, um, thought about the life I've lived and who I was. And I was pretty good with it. Um, it was a pretty wild experience. And, and in my mind, I kind of started to snap back into it and go, no, no, you're not dying. You're just going to shock. Um, breathe, breathe. So I started to breathe, took some deep breaths, and then I could start to see inside the truck again. And then breathe a little more. I could start to get outside the truck. Like, okay, you're going to be okay. You're going to live. So we meet the ambulance about halfway between Elko and where we were. I get out of the truck and meet the EMTs. And they have me sit down in the dirt next to the truck. Still don't know why. Um, <laughs> again, hang out here for a second. Again, it's zero degrees. Yeah. And uh, the EMT asked me, do you want me to take your jacket off or do you want me to cut it off? I said, effing cut it off. I'm not moving my arm. So he starts cutting up. And like I said, there's down, so there's feathers flying. <laughs> you know, and um, as he's cutting up and looking at my arm, and I don't see, you know, he's getting up to my forearm, and I don't see any blood yet. Like, okay. Gets close to my elbow, start seeing some You're blood. You're sitting there watching him yeah. cut it. So I start seeing more blood, and uh, he cuts up to my shoulder. And he goes, okay, I found where the bullet entry is. There's no exit wound. The bullet's still inside of you. Oh, wow. So being hunters like we all are and seeing exit wounds, 
I thought that was a good thing. Yeah. I mean, you see what an exit wound looks like. Yeah. It's a lot worse off yeah. than the entry wound. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, okay. And uh, we get in, get in the ambulance and start heading towards Elko. And I asked the EMT, I said, you know, do you think they're going to have to amputate my arm? And he's like, I have no idea, man. You know, you're going to have to get in there. So we get into, we get into the, the uh, hospital in Elko. They x-ray me, and they go, your arm's in too many pieces for us to deal with. We can either send you to Salt Lake City, or we can send you to Reno. And I was like, well, Reno's a lot closer to home. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, at that point, you know, got on the phone, had, had my uncle get on the phone with um, my wife, my parents, let them know kind of what had happened, and then took a nice little $40,000 flight from, uh, <laughs> from Elko to Reno. They take cash? Yeah, <laughs> credit, credit. Um, so I end up doing that, and they they put me on some pretty heavy drugs at that point. And talking with the flight nurses, they're like, "Okay, so just so you're aware, when you get get to the hospital, it's going to be pretty intense. There's going to be a full trauma team there. There's going to be a lot of people. It can just be a little bit overwhelming." It's like, "Okay, how long is the flight? Like, how long did it take you to get there? You want to do a cost per minute, or no, no. <laughs> is, it, is it like a fifty-minute flight? I mean, how long are you? No, on? it was pretty quick. Okay. I mean, you know, I mean, just driving from Elko to Reno is about four hours, so yeah. it was like probably thirty, forty-five yeah. minutes. Okay, you know, it was pretty quick, quick. and it was it was in a, a little jet. Um, and you're conscious the whole time. Yeah, conscious the whole time. Yeah. I mean, partially conscious. Yeah. I was floating yeah. um, <laughs> on in more ways than one. <laughs> and so they pushed me in on the gurney and. There's like 20 people sitting there. There's people taking my boots off, picking all these clothes off, asking me questions, you know. Do you know what caliber it was? Do you know what grain the bullet was? And it was really cool because some of the, the surgeons that I had there at, at Renown and Reno were uh, hunters and shooters, so they, they knew exactly what I was talking about. So anyways, they, they slide me through the, the MRI um, and then put me over an ICU, and they come over and talk to me and and one of the surgeons, um, one of the orthopedic surgeons, it's like, you know, extremely unlucky you got shot, but also very lucky. Um, the bullet hit you. So it was a 40-grain uh, frangible bullet um, coming out of 223 at like 3,900 feet per second. Um, and when it hit my arm, it, you know, clouded. It essentially yeah. broke up into a million different pieces, like a frangible hollow point type of bullet does. Yeah. And... Uh, it hit my arm and, and shattered my arm into lots of different pieces. So luckily, it hit the bone. If it would have missed the bone, right left the bone, it went straight into my heart and lungs. If it would have went an inch higher, it would have went into my shoulder. I probably would have never been able to use my left arm again. Um, but what it did was it hit the bone, shattered. It A fragment hit my artery and didn't break it. It oh. caused what's called a pseudoaneurysm, where it weakens the wall of the artery. It ballooned it out. And it didn't break. Wow. If it would have broke, I'd have died right there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he told me I was very lucky that that all happened. And, again, keep in mind the situation. I mean, this was a moving coyote. The guy that, that shot me was, sh you know, trying to shoot at this moving coyote. Yeah. He was, you know, one of the hunters in my group. I was moving at that time, moving to my left. So, yeah. I mean, all those things combined for it to hit right there and to cause the least amount of you know, potential long-term damage is pretty crazy. So I, I spent five days in the hospital, got uh, a nice big titanium plate that got put in there. Um, they got most of the, they got all the bone fragment out, the little pieces, but they left all the bullet fragment in, the lead, 
because they said it was more invasive to, to pull it out than to leave it in. My body will just kind of naturally work it out um, over the that course of that time. But spent five days in the hospital, uh, took, I think, five pints of blood during that time um, after my surgery and got out, I think it was, let's see, so that was December 9th, 9th 2017. Um I was back in a duck blind and shot a gadwall one-handed in January. January nice. like 15. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, it's pretty crazy to have that shattered. Um, fantastic surgeons there at Renown. And as I was sitting there in the hospital um, thinking about this, in my mind I was trying to figure out how I can turn this into a positive. You know, yeah. I mean, this was, this was a life-changing event. It probably affected my wife and my family more than me because um, it was pretty significant for them to, to see that happen to me. Yeah. Um, and so in my mind, I was trying to make sure, okay, how do, I, how do I turn this into a positive? And that's when I knew, I said, okay, I've always thought about being a 100 instructor, but I'm going to be a 100 instructor. And I'm going to tell the story to people so that they can understand the responsibility that they have. And yeah. if I can save one person from getting shot, uh, potentially, you know, killing someone then it's all worth it it's it's worth it that it happened to me and that i survived through it so i came back i became a hundred instructor and uh, i've been fortunate to tell that story to a lot of different kids and adults throughout their hundred education journey and it's it's a story that is impactful but you also got to be careful with it right because you don't want to scare people away yeah from yeah. from hunting so you kind of got to make sure that you you tell it the right way and make sure that people just understand that it's responsibility. These things can happen, but if you're responsible, they won't happen. Um, so yeah, that was kind of the the story and how I became a hunter instructor. And I've been fortunate enough, like I said, to be able to tell that to a lot of different people. Um, it, I've told it at um, a bunch of CWA sponsored events. Um, and I don't know. I, I've thought about it. If if I could go back and and have it not happen, I don't know if I would. Um, you know, I don't want to go through it again. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, it, it made it gave me a better perspective on life uh, to live every day more positively. Um, and like I said, I, I think that telling that story will be able to help people and uh, hopefully help someone um, not go through what I did. Yeah, man, so. that's a crazy story, and you're here. Yeah, you pretty know. crazy. Did, did the bullet ricochet off something and then hit you? Or is it a straight shot, like a miss from the moving target, and you were just in the line? Of yeah, so, I mean, in my mind, it was really weird. In my mind, it was all kind of slow motion, and I thought that it actually went through the coyote. Um, it did not. That, you know, in my mind, I like even when they went back and investigated the scene, there was no dead coyote there, you know. Um, he, he shot over the top of it, and uh, it was just a pure miss, and it was just right in line with where oh, I was at. Wow. So. I mean, the, the story to be told and the lesson to be learned there is, you know, one of the, the key components, one of the Ten Commandments of gun yeah. safety is know your target and what's beyond, beyond right? Yeah. And so that individual had, you know, forgotten where I was at. Um, in the heat of the moment, you know, things happening fast. They do. You know, yeah. and I, I, I have, you know, I have no blame for the guy. Um, I feel actually worse for him because he probably went through a lot knowing yeah. that, knowing what happened, you know. Um, is this a friend of yours or a friend of the uncles? It was a friend of my uncles. Yeah, okay. I, I hadn't met him till that day. Okay. Um, Does he still hunt? I, I think so. Hmm. I hope so. Yeah, I, I I hope that I hope that it didn't deter him from hunting. Yeah. Because um, yeah, I mean it's 
it's something that, you know, we're all passionate about. And like I said, it's, it's a mistake that can be made because things are happening fast. You've got, you've got rifles and you've got big game animals and like it's a non-game species, but something coming in fast, Yeah, you know, and, and even since that day, like I get a little bit worked up when we have something like that, where you've got rifles and something's coming fast or you're calling something in, it gets a little bit eerie for me. Do you tend now to limit who you hunt with in terms of who it is? I know you got a, some <clears throat> close groups of friends that you hunt with. Is it, you just, do you go outside of that group anymore? Yeah, I still do. Um, you know, I, we still, I still help coordinate, coordinate hunts for CWA and, and hunt with new people. Um, you know, work with the college camps with, with new folks. Yeah. Um, so I still do. I definitely am more conscious of the safety decisions and have that safety talk. Yeah. I'm definitely not someone who's going to let something slide. Yeah. You know, if someone's barrel is, is pointing somewhere it's not supposed to, I'm going to let you know. Right. Which I think is good, right? And and yeah. you can't you can't you can't be like, oh, they're you know, I, I'm embarrassed or you, you don't want to make sure. Got to speak up. You got to yeah. speak up. Yeah. You have to say it. So, yeah. Yeah, I remember um, hearing about it from I think Orlando or Robert when it happened. Basically, just all everyone got was Kevin was shot helicopter reno and i was like it and then it was like a couple of days later we're like what's going on dude and, then, and finally but it's kind of scary i like kind of wakes you up just you know like as a hunter like it, it can happen yeah quickly you know In oh instant. yeah 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 and i, I don't know about you guys but i i know a lot of people who have had those instances where guns gone off for you know because something wasn't right you know you didn't right. you, did, you didn't you weren't all your safety precautions weren't there the gun went off but it's usually just pointed in a safe direction and, it, and nothing's happened. Yeah. I think this is a good wake-up call for people to see, oh, it can't happen to someone close to me. Yeah. yeah. I got a good education as a kid. I remember sitting on the ground. My dad's going to hate me for this. <laughs> um, I was hanging out on the carpet in our house, and I remember I could look up through my dad's foot as my mom was cleaning it with iodine and gauze. <sighs> oh. No way. Yeah. Oh. Uh, he, uh, he used to work at a rod and well, – when he was younger, he worked at a rod and gun club, and they were shooting skeet all the time. And it was common practice for those guys to unload their gun, put the barrel on their foot, and yeah. then rest on the butt of their gun. Well, you know, he got into that habit, and then they went up pigeon hunting, choose Ridge, and did the same thing. Some pigeons or something came by, reached down to pick up his gun, 12 gauge, right through the top of his oh, foot. Boom. Wow. Clean hole. I mean, just like all the way through. Yeah. So he got a, I don't know if it was a $40,000 helicopter flight, but he got one. <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, now, I mean, he was lucky. Um, he's got all of his toes and, and can still walk. Yeah. But, How old you know, he? he's got a, shoot, I don't know. He's probably in his, uh, had to be in his late 20s, early 30s. Okay. I don't know. But yeah, now he's, now it looks like he's got a, you know, a shotgun crimp. <laughs> right on the top of his foot. It all sucked up into uh, a crib. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just like a 12 graze. Like if you could yeah. picture that on the top of his foot. Um, but yeah, you know, safety's huge. And all of our programs, you know, we we preach it, we teach it, but stuff happens, Yeah, you know. And I, I know some of the other podcasts, you know, the guides were talking, Casey and Jason were talking about the things that they experience, and it can happen in an instant, and yeah. stuff just goes sideways, and you've got to be ultra careful. And in my experience, it's the older guys that just get too comfortable. Mm -hmm. Doing it forever. And, yeah. man, I remember my late grandfather, you know, I wanted to take him hunting in his mid-80s, and 
I just couldn't do it anymore because he just took that shotgun and slap it on his lap and just swing oh, it around. And, yeah. and I just started feeling bad because, like you said, I was the bad guy. I was like, Dude, I, yeah. I can't have you pointing the gun at me yeah. or anybody else. And, and then he'd get all flustered. And, you know, I'm, I'm experienced this, that, and the other. I'm like, sorry. I don't like looking down the barrel of a 12-gauge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not pleasant. It's unloaded. I don't no. care what it, it is. Doesn't, yeah, it yeah. doesn't matter. Most dangerous gun in the world is one that's unloaded, right? Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. So at the time of your accident, were you working for CWA? Or were no. you working for NWTF? Yeah, so I, I first started working for, for CWA in 2012. I came on as a uh, assistant project manager in the Sassoon Marsh, working for, for Robert, essentially doing, you know, wetland habitat restoration projects mm-hmm. in Sassoon, which was awesome. You know, growing up as a uh, as a duck hunter, you know, as a hunter, <laughs> you know, very traditional hunting family. My, I've got pictures in uh, in a book that's actually on Jake's desk of my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather um, with bags of birds off the San Joaquin River in 1921 near Modesto. Oh, wow. That's cool. Plug, plug for Yancey Forrest Knowles. <laughs> what's, what's the title of that? I, I can't remember to, the title. They came to shoot. They came, they came to no, shoot. That, no, no, is that's a different uh, one? Oh, man, we're going to get in trouble oh, for this. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry, anyway, Yancey. Yeah, check out Yancey's book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's something the about the yeah, Pacific Flyway, but... Uh, um, <laughs> It's it's pretty cool. So I mean, grew up very much into hunting. It was everything to me. I remember my first boat ride in the dark when I was uh, eleven in the Butte Sink and to, to hunt and hunt this you know fantastic duck club. And and from then on, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. So when in 2012 when I came to work for CWA, it was a, a dream come true, right? Um, so getting to work on duck clubs on state wildlife areas, putting waterfowl habitat onto the ground, it was awesome. Um, Worked for about two years and then uh, got an opportunity with National Wild Turkey Federation um, to become a district biologist for them and hemmed and hawed about it for a little while and, and decided to take him up on it. Uh, sorry, Jake. <laughs> and, uh, hey, you're, you're here today. Bro. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up with, uh, with that job for uh, just about eight years, which was awesome. Love that job. Love that organization. Um, and in 2021, um, December 2021, had an opportunity to come back. Um, Jake and I talked, and he said there was a, uh, a potential for this conservation easement program in our, our land trust and wanted to see that program grow grow and have someone take over the helm of it and, and do that with it. And so I, I jumped at the opportunity and came back to CBA in, in December 21, and, and uh, it's nice to be back with family, man. It's uh, It's been a fun ride. Love the love the time I spent at, at NWTF and and great organization but there's something about being back home with cwa yeah so. no more leaving you're, you're, stuck. you're <laughs> stuck now i'm stuck now leave once but uh, that's it. <laughs> yeah, man we got a we got a good group of guys yeah yeah great team you know from the wetland side obviously hunt program waterfowl education um even just you know freaking warehouse staff everybody we've got a great team here all the administrative folks yeah, guys and gals across the board. It just everyone that you work with here is just seems like everyone's in it, and it just makes it fun because everyone has that passion for their organization, which helps. You know? Yeah. So I I got a question, Kevin. You know, my my father in law was telling me about a uh, my father in law who was it? Um, anyway, someone was telling me about this podcast that they were listening to the other day, um, where the the host like fixes problems, and one of the stories that he told me was about this guy that got hit by, uh, he was riding a bike and he got hit by a car. And similar to what you said, you know, 
it changed his life. Like but in his view, it changed it for the better, yeah. right? And so he he healed from that incident. Um, but the guy that actually was driving the car um, had not. It had changed his life for the worst. Mm. So the fixer, the host of this podcast, connected the two of them. Yeah. And they had this really awkward, you know, challenge conversation to try to work through the things. Yeah. And, you know, your story, um, you know, I asked if the guy still hunted and you said, I don't know. And I was saying, well, it doesn't sound like you're having beers with the guy. So I, I would, I, it made me wonder, um, you know, if you had spoken with this individual and, and how that person's doing and if, if that's something that you're, you're curious about or, yeah. or where, where that relationship is at. No, it's a great question. So yeah, he, he reached out when uh, I was in the hospital kind of early on. It was just, you know, there's a lot going on. Wasn't the right time. Um, since then, you know, we haven't connected. Um, I've talked to some people that know him, that know he went through, you know, a hard time with it and, yeah. you know, asked if I would be open to, to meeting him and talking with him about it. Absolutely. Um, it just hasn't happened. It has, yeah. We haven't had the opportunity to do it. Um, neither of us have really sought it out, I guess, but yeah. I would definitely be happy to do it and, uh, and talk through it because I mean, yeah, I've, I've no hard feelings with the individual yeah. at all. And I hope it, it didn't affect his life poorly. Um, yeah. I'm sure it, it messed him up for a little while it, as it would me. I sure. know I would be yeah. really messed up. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. but no, I, I would definitely be open to it and, and would, would love to do it. Was there yeah. ever a thought in your mind of hanging it up? No, no, it's funny. I was, uh, I was, so I was laying, laying in the hospital bed watching uh, YouTube hunting videos on my iPad. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was just when uh, Born and Raised was coming out with their Land of the Free Elk Hunts, and I was yeah. like, I got like, to catch up on my uh, elk hunts here. Yeah. So, no, it, uh, there's good. nothing that could, I don't, I don't think there's anything that could change me from that. Um, it's something, like I talked about, that is is so ingrained into my DNA from my heritage and my upbringing and just how we've lived and everything that uh, yeah. I don't think it could ever mess with that. I think it helps that your wife's also really into the outdoors too. Yeah. And some people might, their wives would be like, you're not. Doing that <laughs> and maybe they'd be like, yeah, okay, but yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it, it uh, yeah, even, even with her being in the outdoors, I'm sure there was still uh, a concern of going back out, but I don't yeah. think it was, I think she knew that it was something that. Uh, it's part uh, of you. Yeah, yeah. It was just my identity. Yeah. Yeah, for Definitely. sure. But that's a great question. And yeah, I have had a lot of people ask like, oh, did you ever think about hanging it up after getting shot? It's like, eh, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I'm I'm super thankful that you're okay. Yeah. Appreciate it. Um yeah, that's that's intense. Yeah. Big yeah. Time. It's it's crazy to think about kind of the trajectory of my life and where I was. So and now we have my wife and I have two boys. We've got a uh, four-year-old and an almost two-year-old. They're both wild and crazy. Yeah, um, a lot of sleep at night. Yeah, none. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there, there's benefits to that. Um, but yeah, it, it's just to think about how my life could have changed or, or you know, me not being here and, and those two individuals not even being on this earth. It's just yeah. it's crazy to think about. Yeah. You think that passion and that uh, – <clears throat> experience really seeps through when you're educating these the college kids that are going to go out and enforce a lot of the laws in California? I hope so. You know, I, I got a chance this last year um, because of the heavy rain year that we had. Unfortunately, we weren't able to have the duck hunt uh, as a part of the college camp. We had to transition it into a turkey hunt in the springtime. 
yeah. at, at Paul Bonderson's place there, Birdhaven Ranch. And I got the opportunity to kind of give a turkey talk with my past history with, uh, with turkeys, which was a lot of fun. Um, and informative. And informative. Carson, after you're done, you're like, did you know any of this? <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. yeah. It was what was really cool about that with John Eady. You know, yeah. he was a game yeah. bird professor at UC Davis was like, I didn't know that. Yeah, he's, he told he's like, can you come give that talk to my yeah. class? Yeah. <laughs> so it was pretty cool. That was, that was nice to hear. But, uh, no, I, I think it does, you know, and, and just having that passion and experience with it, I think translates into these folks and, and they can see that. And it, and then they learn that the hunter is not just, you know, maybe someone that they thought they were, that they're these passionate individuals that care about conservation. They have that common goal. Um, and then hopefully they take that forward. And, and, you know, like Jake said, when they're working for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and they got to go work on a duck club, if, even if they don't carry on that hunting experience or that hunting tradition, they go, hey, I did this this one time. I know what these places are all about. You know, this is pretty cool out here. So yeah. I think that, you know, my passion, our passion for these types of things translates when we're talking about it. And I think it, it really makes an impact on these folks in the future for hunters as, as well as for the resource. I think you know that that passion's contagious, right? So we do have all those people that are helping out throughout that weekend. They're extremely passionate about you know yeah. the resource and hunting and, and teaching people. And the students are like, "Man, you guys really opened my eyes." It, but it's because of your passion. It's not yeah. you know boring. We're, we're kind of putting our heart and soul in it, and that's contagious. And by the end of the weekend, they're like, "One, everyone here is awesome, and they're all hunters." And my misconception of hunters is basically blown on away it's not yeah. you know there's normal people like everyone else when they see the investment right the investment from paul bonderson in, in that property and how much work it is to yeah. make it into this paradise right and if you didn't have that passion for for waterfowl for waterfowl hunting it wouldn't be done yeah you know we talked a little bit about the Sassoon marsh earlier the only reason that's not developed i mean it's right next it's in the footprint essentially of the bay area yeah. you know one of the most um one of the most um urbanized places in in the freaking u.s the only reason it's not developed and turned into houses is because of duck hunters. Yep. You know, they, they maintained that conservation footprint out there for the birds, yeah. for the fish, for everything, because of their desire and their passion to duck hunt. So it's pretty incredible what, what that's done. No, I wholeheartedly agree. I think that's great. One thing, um, if you could do an outro, I know we got you doing it, but I do want to have him do it as well. Do it. Okay. An outro. Sorry. You want me to look in the camera like I've been, or can we just, no, say just stare no, into the camera? Oh, I hate that. You're like, no, no, no. <laughs> Maybe give it a wink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies' night. Oh goodness. I think we need to carry this conversation into the actual duck blind. Hmm. Hey, the thirteenth. Come yeah. on out. Yeah. Brad's gonna shoot his first duck on the thirteenth. All right. Don't. Don't don't send invites. <laughs> don't, tell, don't tell me we're the good time. <laughs> but uh, now, Jake, Kevin, it was awesome talking to you guys, and thanks for spending the time with us here in uh, Save It for the Blind podcast. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks for having. Of us. course, appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Save It for the Blind podcast. You can find our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.